thank you for listening to this episode of Changes Big and Small. This is Demian, your host as we explore what makes change exhilarating. Each week, I share research or interview guests to help us make changes in our own lives. Today, I'm speaking with Lani V. Cox. She is an Asian American gypsy who has lived on three continents. She's been an archaeologist, Waldorf teacher, and worked for a company that shipped large animals around the world. Currently, she lives in Thailand teaching English and is working on her second book. You can find her at lanivcox.com, and that link will be in the show notes. Welcome, Lani. I've got to get right into it. So one of the ways you identify is as a writer. Tell us about that. Yes, I've actually been writing since I was a preteen, since about 13 years old. It happened when my family moved from beautiful Hawaii, which is where I'm from, to the middle of Death Valley Desert in California. And so I went from this lush tropical environment to a really boring desert, not even a pretty desert with lots of cactus and things like that. It was just really bare, hostile environment, very windy, the tumbleweeds blowing by that just like in the movies. And suddenly I was stuck inside. I was without friends. And that's when I found reading and writing. And writing was just my just a comfort thing, you know, trying to get my feelings out. And I think it's normal for a teenager, especially girls, to start a dear diary at that time. How old were you then? I, I was about 13 years old when we moved. When I was around that age, I was doing the dear diary thing and, you know, but then you've kept writing. What attracted you to continue this journey till now? That's a great question. I don't know. I just enjoyed it. It felt like a friend. It felt like a great outlet when I was feeling really, I wasn't feeling close to my mom during the teenage years. And I think it was because she grew up in a whole different country, Thailand, during a different time. So I didn't really feel like we had anything in common. And so that was probably just my way of finding some sort of outlet, a creative outlet. And it's funny, in the sixth grade, when I was still in Hawaii, I was like 11 or 12 years old, our school did an assessment. I think it was statewide. So there was an assessment of, you know, how were the students doing? And one of the things that they assessed us on was writing. And I remember getting back my results and it basically it said, oh, she's very opinionated. And I remember liking that. And I'm not the kind of person to keep things. I don't have that sentimental hold, but that was definitely something I kept. I liked my results <laughs> from writing. I don't know why. So did you keep writing as well after you did your Dear Diary during teenage years? I write off and on. I started blogging many years ago and every once in a while I let it lapse and then I get back to it and I'm trying to do journaling more recently. I was inspired by some of my previous podcast guests to get back into mm -hmm. journaling just as a way of exploring 
myself and my thinking. And while I might sometimes want to do it on my blog, because I enjoy sharing things with the world as well, I think there's also value in writing just for myself. And I'm trying to get back to that to some extent. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I really, I really enjoy it. I guess some people have their different ways of expressing themselves and some people talk a lot. (laughs) It's funny because I find myself listening as I've gotten older or just more and more listening and also probably being a teacher and, you know, that whole teacher talk time, make sure you don't spend too much time talking. It's not like I'm particularly shy or anything or afraid of my opinion. It's just, I'm fine just listening to other people. And then I'll say what I have to say when I write. You asked me that question. And so it's still kind of going through my head. How much do I write? And what do I write? I read much more than I write. But I'm also trying to do less consumption and a bit more creation as well. But I kind of find myself to be an impatient writer. Sometimes I think it out in my head, but then when it comes to writing it out, it's like I've already done it and I'm a little bit more impatient than I'd like to be. And so that's something I'm working on. I feel like I'm more impatient when it comes to editing. Like I don't want to have to look at it again. (laughs) Not that I think that I'm perfect by any stretch of the imagination. It's just hard, especially grammar. Because I was born and raised in America, Americans really are. I don't know if you've noticed this from working with, you know, international expats and different people from around the world, but Americans are the worst when it comes to grammar because we're not really taught it. And if we are, I don't know, something about having to learn your native language grammar is just painful because you take it for granted and it's so intuitive. Like you kind of get a feel for the way it should sound but the way you think it should sound is not always correct. Do you teach ESL right now? Is that correct? I do, yes. And so that's really something that you have to grapple with often in terms of with your students. Yes, that's true. And it does depend on the level. Sometimes you get low level and then it's not really a problem. But yeah, it doesn't matter. I mean, even with low level students, I remember just they'll ask you these curveball questions and you're like, you know, Uh, let me get back to you. (laughs) (laughs) Or I will run to another teacher and ask them the question. Like I know who's the best grammar person at every school I've taught. And then I run to them and I ask, I don't mind interrupting teachers. And if they can interrupt me, that's fine as well. I feel like we've had to get used to it. We've had to just be flexible. I don't mind telling students, I don't know. Let me get back to you. Yeah, I think that's great modeling because we can learn even when we don't know. And that happens all through life. Yes. So you wrote and you published a book, The Missing Teacher. What inspired the book? Well, I actually had a really life-changing negative experience when I wanted to be a Waldorf teacher. And I don't know if you're familiar with Waldorf education. Most people are familiar with Montessori. I've heard of Waldorf, but I don't know, like I've never really studied it or anything because it was kind of peripherally for younger students where I taught more middle school and high school. Yeah, so Waldorf education, what attracted me to it initially was that it's considered an art-based education. So holistic learning, the students learn music, a foreign language. They also learn to work together as groups in many activities. 
it's also a much more, I don't want to say physically oriented, but it's definitely not the kind of education where you're sitting behind the desk the whole time. You really are encouraged to move around, work as a team. It's very creative. It's a very creative education. And so I did two years of teacher training. I learned about Rudolf Steiner, who founded the educational program back in what is now Germany. Um, this was around World War One and World War Two, I want to say. And then when I was in a young Waldorf school, I just had a horrible experience. I did everything wrong. And all the parents were not, not all of them, but a lot of parents were not happy. They were very vocal. It was a private school. So private school parents, I think, are much more invested because they are using their hard-earned money. So eventually I was fired and I was absolutely devastated. And it really, it shook me in a lot of ways. You know, for some people, it's a divorce that changes their life or maybe they move abroad or there's a death. And for me, it really was that experience because for the first time, I really wasn't accepted. Prior to that, I'd always had good rapport and marks with throughout work. So I'd never experienced just being on the other end where people were gossiping and I was not trusted and I second guessed myself. And I was very naive. It took that naive or naivete away from me. And school politics, oh boy, it was just such a huge awakening. And there was no leadership. Nobody knew what to do about lots of problems that were going on in the school. So after it happened, I just didn't know what to do. I got out of teaching. I was really lost. I went back home to Hawaii. I tried to go back to school um, and even contemplated Montessori education, which is very different than Waldorf. If you don't mind my asking, how old were you then when this happened? Or how many years ago either? Oh, this was <laughs> lots of years ago. There's a good grammar for you. <laughs> I was 28, 30 around then. And yeah, like one of the criticisms, it's interesting you bring up the age thing, is um, that I was considered too young and that because I didn't have children, I wasn't fit to teach. So just uh, crazy things like that. And what I came away with was how much I tangled my self-worth and identity with my occupation. And I had to kind of not only forgive the people who I felt had wronged me, but also forgive myself for what I felt I had done, whether it was correctly or incorrectly, or just the whole mess. So there were these steps, and it took a long time. I, and then I also realized um, that everyone is a teacher. I grew up during a time when it was really popular to say, I'm a student of life. But I felt like, you know, you also teach. You teach through your behavior, your actions, the way you speak, what you say. I mean, we're definitely teaching all the time, whether we are aware of it or not. You know, like when you cut the cue or you throw a piece of trash down when you think no one's looking. You know, those are all actions in which, you know, someone is watching. Not like in a creepy way, but... <laughs> People notice what you do. Right. 
And it, it was interesting because I remember I was at a fast food restaurant in Hawaii and there was a dad who, interestingly enough, was wearing a Waldorf t-shirt. Oh, it was so crazy. And he was with his son. And so they had gotten their burger and fries and whatever, and they were supposed to get their soda. And then and all of a sudden they drop the tray and the soda spilled all over. And the people behind the counter, for some strange reason, didn't notice. And I was kind of, you know, just watching this thing, waiting for the dad to like go, okay, son, go tell them that we made the spill. Or for him to grab some napkins or something. And he just walked away with the son, like, come on, come on, let's go. And I thought, wow, you just taught your son to just walk away from a huge mess. Yeah, I get it. It was an accident. But how hard would it have been to just tell someone to grab a mop if you didn't want to clean it up yourself. So that was my big takeaway was that we really all are teachers. And even though I felt like the school had taken that title away from me, I still considered myself a teacher. But I didn't teach for many years after that. It wasn't until I moved abroad that I actually decided to try teaching. But you see, I didn't even do it in the States. I went all the way to Thailand <laughs> to teach. So that should tell you how much it just drove me nuts. Before we get to Thailand, how did you recover from this? I mean, I imagine that it was quite a uh, traumatic, uh, stressful experience for you. I guess for some people, it might seem strange because they don't identify that much with their job. A lot of people hate their job or can't wait to for a retirement. But it wasn't that way for me. But it definitely took steps. You know, there was the incidents where, you know, I watched the father spill the drink. And another incident that happened was when I was in a car with a friend. We're listening to an audiobook. I don't know if you're from Malcolm Gladwell. Yep. I listened to his podcast. Okay. He wrote the book Outliers, and he was talking about how different people raise their children differently. Now, I know that sounds absurd, but specifically how people with money raise their children differently than people without money. And when I was in Waldorf, I really was a fish out of water. I come from a working class background. My mom worked in the kitchen. She was an immigrant, had to drop out of school when she was about 10 years old because her family was too poor for her to uh, continue her schooling. And then she worked um, in housekeeping for many years after that. And my dad died when I was very young. And the man who raised me, he also dropped out of school at a very young age. So these are the people that raised me. And when I was in Waldorf, I was suddenly around people who had a good amount of money. One of Waldorf's thing is you visit the children at home. So I got to see how these people lived. And so back to Malcolm Gladwell. And so in the book, he's talking about how rich or, you know, upper middle class versus uh, poor children, you know, how parents raise their children. And it was just kind of an aha moment. You know, I, I never felt like the people there treated me differently because of the way I look or anything like that. And people have congratulated me for not playing the race card. But it, that, it just really wasn't about that. But I, I, I definitely felt like something wasn't happening. And I, I think it was because the children were 
raised to report every little thing to the parents and challenge authority. And that's something that Gladwell had talked about as well. Whereas when I was raised, you know, children were definitely seen but not heard. And you didn't rat out someone else and you didn't complain and you didn't really have a lot of choices. And so that whole unraveling illuminated my experience a little bit better. It's almost like culture. It's like, you know, when you move to another country and you're like, why? Why did this happen? I don't understand. You have no context for it initially. Right, right. And then you replay the events in your mind. And then after a while, you start to think, well, maybe it has to do with different ideas of how things are done in this culture versus another culture. So I think that was a lot of it, just definitely being out of my element. And, you know, even though they accused me of being young and maybe that was too harsh, I think there was some truth to that. I really am a lot older and wiser now. That experience helped me grow up. Yeah, it's interesting because I remember when I was teaching maybe in India, that was my first international school, and I always felt a little bit of um, the hired help. Right. And not that hired help is a bad role. Like, I mean, we all have our place to play in society, but the hired help in the old style where you should not really be seen or heard. You just do your work invisibly in the background. It was a very uncomfortable feeling. Right. That's a great way to put it. That's how I felt because it was, it really was insulting for me to be challenged by not only the parents, which I get to an extent, but that the students were encouraged to, to be that way as well. I really felt like I didn't have any respect. Exactly, because there are ways to have conversations about things when you disagree, but it's the lack of respect and value that really gets to me. It's interesting. You could just see how people treat waiters in a restaurant or um, a person at the front desk of a hotel. You know, I'm not saying that teachers are necessarily treated that way, but you definitely can see how some teachers in some instances feel that way or any profession. So you moved to Thailand in 2009. How did you decide on that move? Well, in 2007, my partner at the time, <laughs> we went to Thailand for a holiday and I hadn't been back in a very long time. I can't even, 15 years. It's it just been a really long time since I've been back. So we went and it was just fun. It was also very special because my mom was also returning and there were two big events. One was an open house, which is a Thai celebration of when you have a new house you buy a new house or you build a new house. And so unbeknownst to me, my mom was like sending money to Thailand to have a house built for her, her father and her sister. So that happened. And also, she was also sending money to the local temple. And so in our neighborhood, there was a new temple opening, which is also a really big deal. So we got to be a part of not only the open house, but the new temple opening. 
And it just kind of fueled in me what I had always felt, which was to live and work abroad. Like I've, I've always wanted to have that experience. So it was like, well, why not? Let's do it. You know, um, we had a positive experience in Thailand. My mom, mom never taught my brother and I Thai. So to me, that was also a way of me trying to learn Thai. It's like, oh, I'll just go back to Thailand. I'll go to Thailand. I'll learn Thai and everything will be fine. <laughs> no, 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 no. It is so hard to learn another language, especially Thai, because it's tonal. It's very different. Very different. Tonal and it's a different script. And uh... Yeah, reading and writing, forget it. And grammar. Um, but I tried. I really tried. I took classes, different schools. I had one-on-one -on -one tutors. To this point, how long have you been in Thailand up to this point continuously? Let's put it this way. I've lived abroad for 10 years. Not all in Thailand. Um, I lived about six months in Ecuador and about two and a half years in Cambodia. Okay. And how is your Thai? I can get by. It really depends on where I'm at, what's interesting. For example, if I'm in a city that receives a lot of tourists, like Chiang Mai, when I speak Thai, it's amazing. They're like, oh, wow. That's so wonderful that you learn Thai. <laughs> but when I'm in the north with my family, I, northern dialect is different than the dialect they teach okay. you. And uh, it's like I've learned absolutely nothing. One thing I find interesting is the whole concept of home because I've also moved quite a bit. And the place that I will settle down and live one day is not the place that I'm currently living and it's not the place where I was born. Where's home to you? I think as long as my mom is in Hawaii, home will be Hawaii. Um, but home is definitely where, wherever I am, because I've moved so much like you that I've learned to adapt and be flexible and to make my home as homey and as comfortable as possible. Because it is challenging when you are in a different country and you're not used to the amenities that you're used to. Yeah, you just, you learn to decorate <laughs> with, with what you have and you, you figure out what's important to you. I think I've gotten better at being patient with decorating, wanting everything to be perfect. Plants are huge for me. So as soon as I move into a new place, I try to get as many plants as, as possible. And that really helps to have something living and to take care of something in your environment. But once my mom dies, which I hate to think about, I just think, well, then what is Hawaii? You know, Hawaii is just a place I was born and raised. There would be no reason to go back there because it's so expensive. So Hawaii is, yeah, home for now. What about you? When my grandmother was alive, because I lived with her for most of my childhood years, I used to think that St. Lucia was home. I heard somebody describe it as kind of being a snail and taking your home with you so that you just like carry it on your back. And I kind of feel that way a bit. I feel like home is wherever I don't have to live in my suitcase. 
if I can put things away and feel comfortable in my space and not have to answer to anybody, Mm -hmm. then to me, that's how I define home now as an adult. But I think the place that's probably most familiar to me now is Canada. But there is nowhere that really calls my name. So what's it like being an Asian American or American Asian, whichever one you put first in Bangkok? Oh, no, you don't live in Bangkok. You live in Rangian, is it? It's called Rayon. Rayon. That's okay. It's not a very popular uh, place to go. You look Asian. You speak some Thai, but you wrote about how your mannerisms, the way you walk too quickly or the way you dress (laughs) might give you away. Oh, you really do your homework. It's a little scary. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, being Asian-American in Asia, I have other friends too, so they all have their unique stories to tell. But for me, I get looked at a lot, which is strange because you would think I would blend in. And sometimes I definitely blend in, but you'd be surprised by how many people just stare. And my boyfriend doesn't like it because he knows that staring in any culture is rude. So sometimes he'll get upset, but I'm so used to it that it doesn't bother me. I ignore it. I think they might be trying to figure out what I am (laughs) because I don't look Thai. They can kind of tell that I have some Chinese. Something else. (laughs) Yeah, it's just something else going on. Sometimes people are quite shocked when they do speak to me in Thai, and I don't speak Thai very well back. But as more and more Asians travel to Thailand, especially the Chinese, I'm definitely getting more people speaking to me in Chinese, or um, it's not so much of a shock when they hear me talk. Do you find that people treat you differently? I've, I've asked myself that very question a lot because I, especially in the classroom, I don't know how other teachers are treated except for the times that I'm, I'm watching students interact with um, a, a Caucasian or a European face as opposed to me. I always joke like, oh, they're going to get the teacher that looks like them and then they're going to be like, Oh, because <laughs> they want that, quote, Western experience, right? And I don't look Western to them until I open my mouth and then get to know me and then they're fine. So that's a great question and I, I just haven't been able to answer. I don't know if I'm treated differently. I think once students get to know me, they see me kind of like as an aunt or a big sister. I flatter myself, but I'm not that young. Um <laughs> And I like that. I think they're much more likely to hug me and be affectionate and and stuff like that. But it also, you know, I'm also female, right? And I don't know how it is for you, but a lot of expat teachers, especially in Thailand, are male. So maybe it has to do with the fact that I'm female more than Asian. I really don't know. In terms of your day-to-day life, What do you find are the challenges and the opportunities of the life you've created for yourself? Well, it's nice to live day by day. It's nice to um, have freedom as much as you can when you're in another country. But at the same time, as I've gotten older, I look at my friends who stay back in the States um, and the stability they have. And maybe that's an illusion. 
You know what I mean? Because there's global warming, there's crazy government, <laughs> um, there's the pandemic, like things that feel stable are constantly changing or can be taken away at a blink of an eye. So I, I definitely feel vulnerable. Like I don't have, and um, I don't make a lot of money. <laughs> I don't have anything saved away. I don't have a house, a car, and I rent. So on the one hand, it's freeing, it's flexible. It is even maybe possibly progressive to live this way because I'm not tied to a mortgage. But there's other people who have some place they can call home. So I think those are the, the bigger challenges. Maybe that wasn't exactly the direction of the question, but that's how I feel right now. You can take the question anywhere you want, of course, but this is resonating with me. The challenge for me, and perhaps you have some of that too, is figuring out what feels right for me and not for what other people say should be right. Do you typically teach at a school then? And if so, how has that changed with the coronavirus pandemic? I have been teaching at language schools. And unfortunately, I think it's been about six weeks since um, Thailand kind of closed everything down. And so I haven't, I haven't been teaching. I haven't been teaching online like other teachers. And I'm, it's frustrating because I asked to do it at the very beginning when everything closed down. I said, let's do it. I'm willing to do it. But I kind of got the closed doors. And perhaps the reason why I did is because people just had more of a wait and see attitude. I don't know. I'm not admin. But um, I did get lucky in nabbing a student who was interested in working online, doing IELTS test prep. So I've just been kind of minimally dipping in that pond. So I have been teaching online, but not through the school. And I also helped a friend out. She went back to the States and she had been teaching online. I helped her out with her student a few times. So it's, it's been tough. Oh, and the crazy thing is days before the pandemic closed Thailand down, my boyfriend had his appendix removed. And that was crazy. That was such a frightening time because we did not want to go to the hospital with a pandemic going on. But everything worked out. We got it out. We got it done. But it took you know, we took a financial hit. That was unexpected, even though we have insurance. It didn't cover as much as we'd hoped, but luckily we got everything figured out. He came home and, you know, he's fully recovered and everything's fine. I'm with the people who are waiting to go back to work, and I'm also um, afraid of what the school numbers are going to look like once we do open the doors. Who's going to come back to school? Who's going to want to wait? So I'm really trying not to think too far in the future because I, it's out of my control. There's nothing I can do. Yeah, I guess that's one of the most challenging things about this time. It's difficult to even plan because we don't know 
what exactly we're planning for in terms of timelines or changes or mutations. There are just so many <laughs> unknown variables that yeah. I can get frustrated sometimes. And I'm like, governments or whatever, you're in charge. Tell me what's going on. But at the same time, I'm like, probably if you told me what's going on, I wouldn't really trust you because how could you possibly know? Yeah. Well, just like you, I mean, you mentioned before having to change travel plans, I find myself in the same boat because I was supposed to go back to Hawaii and then we were supposed to see my brother and have a big family reunion. And I'm just like, I just don't think this is going to happen. Even if I wanted to brave it, the more I thought about it, the more I thought I could get stuck somewhere in transit. They want you to quarantine for 14 days. I'm not going to be anywhere that long. What if a flight gets canceled? Then you get stuck somewhere. And then I was just looking at some of the literature from the airline they had sent me about trying to seat people apart, if possible, spraying down the planes with, you know, not disinfectant. What's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> some sort of air purifying thing and just, uh, yeah. just so much stuff that you're taking your temperature being at the airport like four hours in advance and i'm just like this is not worth it i, I can't i can't put myself through this especially on a long flight on top of it yeah right now you're working on your memoir and are you finished writing it is that did i read that correctly and are getting into the editing stage i am editing it and i'm having a, an editor look at it and I'm also questioning what I've written through the whole process. But I think I've finally figured it out, which is I want my message of my memoir to be uh, fitting in is overrated. That's a great message. And it's something that's come up a few times in other episodes where people have found that there is a cost to fitting in. And at some point, it's not a price that they want to pay anymore. You've gone on a journey of change and growth and you're working on acceptance, which really resonates with the theme of the memoir that you've just shared. Do you have any recommendations for listeners related to change or acceptance? I would say if I was to talk to my younger self or anybody else, don't take yourself too seriously. It's good to remember that when you travel, when you're in relationships. Because we have a tendency to kind of really dig down and go, but I'm right. I'm right. And I think you have to kind of sacrifice a bit of that feeling for peace of mind, peace in a relationship, peace with whatever's happening to you at the moment. And so don't take things too seriously. Relax. And... I don't know, have fun. Life is short. Try to find times to laugh every day. I like that. I've been trying to work on finding opportunities for awe more regularly because I think that I've become a little bit jaded, like, oh, I've already seen this. Oh, this is just the same thing again. And just stopping and being more appreciative of the things that I see that there is sometimes newness even in sameness yeah yeah that's a good way to put it mm -hmm. 
How can people connect with you and follow you? They can go to my blog, which is my name, L-A-N-I-V, as in Victor, but that's not my middle name, <laughs> coxcox.com. <laughs> I always say V as in Victor. I should, V as in Violet? I don't know. I have to think of a better one. I don't know why I think Victor. Do you have any recommendations, anything that you're taking pleasure in right now? Well, I think um, the people who are doing a little bit better during this time are people that had a routine in place and also focus a lot on self-development. So I think it's a great time to find something that resonates with you, whether it be Zen, Buddhism, Christianity, or Stoicism is really popular these days. I think Stoicism and Buddhism have a lot in common, or Zen Buddhism. Just being in the moment, letting go. I really like Tim Ferriss's podcast. I think he's really big on self-development. And he just had Jane Goodall on his podcast, which I can't wait to listen to. Just recently, he also had Benet Brown. She's also wonderful. He also has free resources for Stoicism, which people might find interesting because I've, I've found it really helpful. And for people who are fans of Tim Ferriss, he recently appeared on the Record Decode podcast with Kara Swisher. And he shares some of his advice for staying sane in this time. And mm-hmm. a lot of it are things that he's shared on his own podcast, but there are some other ideas as well from a different perspective with Kara Swisher. So it could be interesting for listeners if you're a fan of Tim Ferriss. Thank you so much, Lani, for taking time to chat with me today. I This could go on, yeah. but all good things come to an end. And thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for finding me and asking me. And it, you're great. Thank you. This is the second in a series of episodes where I will be interviewing people to find out what their experience is during the time of the current coronavirus pandemic. I hope that you enjoyed listening to this episode with Lani. Please share this episode or any of the past ones that you enjoyed with a friend or family member. You can connect with me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and access show notes for this episode and all other episodes at changesbigandsmall.com. Have a great week.